Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Laura Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is August 25th, 2022, and it is my pleasure to have with me today Noam Shezef. Noam is a Tel Aviv-based journalist. He's a founding editor of 972 Magazine, where he still writes, along with writing at Haaretz and for other publications. Noam recently completed a documentary about Hebron titled H2, The Occupation Lab, that premiered at the Kaviv Film Festival in Tel Aviv. And I will say that Noam is one of the wisest voices who I follow to understand what's happening inside Israel, and I'm thrilled to have him with me today. Um, and I'll say you can follow Noam and his work, and you should, on Twitter. Uh, that is um, at N-S-H-E-I-Z-A-F, N-S-H-E-I-Z-A-F, and of course at 972magazine.www.972mag.com. Uh, www so first off, Noam, thank you for joining me today. Hi, Lara. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So I want to talk about a lot of things today, and I've actually wanted to have you on the podcast for quite a while, including the documentary. We'll get to that at the end. And I, I want to start off, and we'll get to this in the conversation, by, by just recognizing for anyone who's listening to this that the overarching, uh, the overarching issue in the news cycle right now for a lot of us is the attack on the Palestinian NGOs that has now been escalated by Israeli authorities. We will get to that in the course of this podcast as well. Um, but the topic of this podcast specifically is the deepening love affair, as I call it, between the American far right and Israel's new right. And this is a topic that I have been tracking and, and worrying about for some time. And it's a topic on which you published a superb article last month in 972 entitled An Israeli Home for America's New Right. And I will include a link to that with this podcast. So, so let's just start the conversation as I turn off my phone. So let's just start uh, with that article. So, um, so the hook for your article is an event that took place in Tel Aviv in May, 2022. Most of our listeners probably don't know about this. That event was entitled Israeli Conservatism Conference. So can you tell us about the, this event, um, its purpose, the groups behind it, the kinds of speakers and ideas for which it provided a platform? So I, I came across this event just because of the name, you know, it's the third uh, conservative conference and it's a one day event uh, in Jerusalem and it's a new thing. It's part of the new phenomenon of these public, public events that are bringing uh, a certain, uh, trying to shape sort of an elitist conservative, new conservative conversation uh, in Israel. And I, I found this uh, fascinating part of several trends in the Israeli right. Uh, uh, one of them, we can talk later about it, is, is, is the cult phenomena around Netanyahu, which will escalate now towards the election. But the, another one is this new attempt to redefine and to reshape what is right-wing thinking and conservative thinking uh, in the Israeli terms. Because uh, even the word conservative is, is a bit American and is different from the way it is perceived here. We, when I grew up, we, speak, we spoke in Israel about right-wing politics, about religious right, about uh, the whole land of Israel. These, these were the kind of topics the right 
was talking about, and now uh, uh, the, the use of the name conservative and some of the uh, of the vocabulary that comes with it suggests a certain change. And I, and, and I found this change fascinating, and that's the first reason I wanted to go to this event. Um, and I found the, the speakers, the speakers were very interesting. They were this hybrid of the new populist uh, pro-Netanyahu right in Israel, uh, journalists like uh, Gadi Taub from Haaretz and uh, R.L. Segal from uh, Mariv and uh, Irit Linor from IDF Radio as a very popular uh, talk, talk radio show. Um, some of them define themselves as former leftists. Some of them actually people I knew and worked with before they had this transformation into this uh, populist leader uh, of the Israeli right. And, and together with them, you know, there were um, American speakers, Ambassador Friedman, uh, former Ambassador Friedman, Trump's ambassador to Israel, uh, actually started an, an NGO which uh, co-sponsored the, the conference. And there were uh, uh, several speakers that were like in between the American and the Israeli conversation. And some of them were more linked to like uh, uh, Trumpian libertarian thinking, Trumping nationalist thinking. And, and so the combination of those forces acting within the Israeli right was also something that I, that I wanted to see. And the third thing that was interesting in, in those events is always to see who's coming to, to listen, not just the, who's coming to speak. You know, you, you could feel a decade ago uh, that the, the, the Israeli left was fading when you came to these events and you always saw the same faces and, and they were getting older and older. And, and um, so, so the crowd that you get to see in those events is always uh, fascinating. And, and so the, I think I'll start with the crowd. And I think uh, I, I didn't came on a press badge. We just, you know, I just, you know, bought a ticket online, took the train to Jerusalem and came at the, uh, before the first panel started. So, um, and, and the people I saw coming were a lot of like those young Israeli men coming from universities, coming from, you know, private colleges, and also a lot of American speaking. You, know, you can hear a lot of English uh, in, the, in the auditorium. So it was mainly a young crowd, uh, um, somewhat political and, and half American, half Israeli. Some of them uh, were working on government agencies. Um, it was not, I would say, the kind of pro-Netanyahu rally crowd that you would see. There was definitely something elitist to the event. And uh, as you walk in, you get this tote bag with uh, the merchandise, like the stickers and stuff that you get. So the, the thing that you get was, the, and that's, I think, kind of crystallized the event I was heading toward, uh, was... was a book by Ronen Choval, who's the leader of uh, an institute called the Argaman Institute. I never heard of it before, uh, which is sort of a, 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 an intellectual uh, think tank. And he was, and, 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 and the book was a revisionist reading of a text by Herzl, the founder of Zionism, 
and 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 Herzl is usually associated to to the point of a myth with a very liberal form, a very secular and a very liberal form of Zionism. And the entire text, the entire booklet was an attempt to show how Herzl actually meant to, uh, um, to put the Jewish nature of the state ahead of democracy, ahead of liberal values. And, and, and I think this text suggested the entire framing of the conference. It's an attempt to, to reshape state values the conference was hosted and by uh, the Tikva Fund. The Tikva Fund is a is an organization that works that uh, works in Israel since the end of the 90s, but has become very prominent in recent years in pursuing those sorts of uh, events and this sort of uh, of a change in the conversation, but also actual legislation, actual political change, and and we can talk about this more. Uh, in in the um, in our conversation, and the rest of it was you know your average political uh, conference. Uh, big speakers like a keynote speak by Amit Segal, who's the celebrity uh, pundit uh, uh, for uh, the Israeli Channel Two News, the most watched uh, daily news show, and also curiously the son of Chagai Segal who's a, a journalist, but also one of the convicted terrorists of the Jewish underground, the settler underground of the, of the 80s, because uh, Haggai, the dad, took part in, a, in, a, in, a, in an attempt to uh, assassinate Arab mayors in the West Bank. Uh, that was in the beginning of the 80s. But uh, his son, Amit, who obviously had nothing to do with that, but he's like a star figure of Israeli television and of the Israeli right right now, highly influential, the most uh, influential Twitter account in Israel. So he was a keynote speaker. Uh, there was a conversation with the American author, uh, Victor David Hansen, on, on, uh, who's a pro-Trump uh, intellectual. And um, curiously, there was uh, Israel's NBA, first NBA star, Omri Kaspi, who's now becoming vocal in his support for the right and for free market ideas. And all these uh, uh, young, uh, uh, or not as young, uh, uh, journalists and TV stars who are associated with the right now. Some of them as keynote speakers, some of it in breakout sessions. Let, let, let me just pick up on something you said there. I, I, your article focuses on the central role of this organization, the Tikva Funds. And I wanna quote you, you wrote, the American new right is now a global phenomenon with elites of its own, much like American liberalism. Yet, while major Israeli left-wing organizations that receive foreign funding from B'Tselem to this website, 972, were born out of a local context, the Tikva Fund is a top-down organization or a top-down operation, explicit in its promotion and importing of an American conservative terminology and agenda in Israel. So can you talk about that? Um, you know, this is something that, that I will say I have been watching for a long time. I, I, I was thinking about it the other day when I was reading um, something um, by Neri Zilber about the, the Likud primaries and the, the sort of ethos of the Likud list, which seems to be trying to remake the Israeli judiciary to look more like the American judiciary, so much more politicized as opposed to this idea that it sits separately from politics. Can you talk about this, this effort, whether it's the Tikva Fund or more broadly, to, to, to import 
is import to Israel a very American flavor of conservative governance. Yeah, so, so there are a few ways to look at that. One of them, which has to do with the, the judicial system, and, and I will not focus on that, is the amazing similarities between the situation of uh, Netanyahu All right, let me start again on this. Um, so there are a few elements that are, uh, that are similar between uh, the Israeli situation and the American right, and there are a lot of differences, but, but I think one of them is, and especially when it comes to the Supreme Court, the uh, uh, law enforcement, is, is the legal problems that President, former President Trump is suffering and that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu is in the midst of and his trial being uh, uh, going on. So, so a lot of Netanyahu's supporters are drawing this inspiration and occasionally even uh, uh, ideas and tactics from, from, from Trump. But I think the phenomena is much bigger than, than Trump and Netanyahu. Um, I think that in the 90s, during the, Netanyahu's first term, there was a realization in the Israeli right that um, they've been losing the battles of ideas, the battle of the elites. And, and, and a, lot of, a, lot of, a lot of attempts started back then to generate new conservative thinking and new, uh, new right-wing elites. And some institutes were, were funded back then, like the Shalem Institute, which translated conservative thinking from even, even classics, which you study in the universities like Edmund Burke or Friedrich Hayek, uh, getting those books translated, getting Ian Run translated and discussed in, uh, in Israel. A lot of it was on economics back then because the political conversation was still shaped by, uh, or the national security conversation was still shaped by the, the, the distinction between the two-state left and the post-settlement right. In the post second intifada, like in the second in the last decade or the last fifteen years, you saw some something gradually changes, and in the last few years, it's really exploded. This top-down operation funded from the United States to completely reshape the conversation here, like um, speaking economics on libertarian terms. Uh, even even attacking Israel's uh, health system, which is considered quite successful, especially compared to the U.S., but trying to explain to Israelis why uh, 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 national health in- uh, government-sponsored health insurance is not a good idea, but also bringing a sort of nationalist conversation that's similar to the American converse- populist conversation about a certain silent majority of Jews. Uh, uh, that is not represented in the political system. And, and bringing um, terminology and political tools that come with these ideas. So um, one of the prime examples is um, the Federalist Society in the United States, which is trying to reshape 
the judicial system. So uh, the Tikva found, Fund, which starts all sorts of organizations in Israel, started uh, the Law and Liberty Forum, an Israeli organization that clearly states in its uh, about page that we're inspired by the Fredly Society and we're trying to do the same thing. Um, an intellectual think tank like the Argaman Institute that I uh, mentioned, but also a lot of seminars to right-wing uh, uh, leaders, uh, even to participants, to, to people from this conference. Like right after I uh, uh, registered to the conference, I started receiving those emails with suggestions to uh, all sorts of uh, Tikva-sponsored activities. So I can register for a, a series of lectures on free market Adam Smith or on uh, nationalism. And I can even get, you know, sponsored throughout this time, like uh, in, in scholarships that range up to, you know, 4,000 US dollars just to come and listen and participate in sort of seminars and classes. Now, the leaders of these organizations are people who were active in the fight between right to left in the previous decades. Like I mentioned Ronan Chauval, he started an organization called Imtirtsu, which started all sorts of conspiracy theories and nasty attacks against the New Israel Fund. So it's kind of multi-level operation trying to attack human rights organizations as foreign interference and trying to uh, uh, influence discourse and trying to reshape some of, uh, some of the ideas uh, uh, um, about what Israeli nationalism is, what is the agenda, and also a certain mood that is part of this populist global uh, uh, phenomena, like uh, 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 the European right, the new right in Europe, the the, the Trump backed uh, intellect, uh, the Trump backers, intellectuals, and 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 these kind of operations. Uh, in Israel. Um, so the interesting thing for me is that it's really a top-down operation. It's people in the United States deciding to reshape the, the, the conservative conversation here, as opposed for, for, for the left here, which usually starts an organization like a human rights organization like B'Tselem or, or others in a very local context and then trying to fundraise here and in the in, in the United States to to you know get a few professionals to manage the volunteers uh, if you wish but but there it's it's kind of different it's as if someone has decided that something was wrong in the right-wing conversation as it was here and it needs to sort of to, to adjust to sort of global language of the right. Uh, I'll give a very concrete example. Like when I grew up, the right used to talk about Israel holding on to the West Bank through religious terms and through security terms. Like saying, if we withdrew from the West Bank and there was a two-state solution, then Tel Aviv would be at risk of missiles. And you go to these conferences and right-wing events, you all had all these leaflets that uh, uh, talked about the danger of missiles on Tel Aviv. Or 
you heard about religious reasons to stay there because the Bible gave us this land that's the home, the real homeland of the Jewish people. Not Tel Aviv, but Nablus or, or Jerusalem. Or I saw none of that in the conference. What you heard more was about the, the rights of a Jewish majority, completely disregarding, uh, you know, the, 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 the native rights of the indigenous people, the, the Palestinians. Like, it's as if it didn't exist. It, it was something about, like, the, the, the rights of Jews to have their democracy be free of foreign intervention and to do what they want with this land. So we can go on to maybe the most successful uh, legal attempt, which is the nation state law, which was also a conversation that started in the United States. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I actually want to go there next. So I want to talk, it, it's fascinating listening to what you're, how you're describing that, because what you're describing in terms of the shifting from either a tactical security argument from a religious argument to this sort of manifest destiny argument is it parallels closely the debate in the United States around CRT and whether you actually talk about things in history that maybe make some Americans who are of a certain demographic sector feel uncomfortable, um, whether that's illegitimate, it, it closely it mirrors that. Um, a I want to talk about a specific Israeli group that's mentioned in your article. It's been written about elsewhere called the Kohelet Policy Forum, which is funded by the Tikva Fund. And in the U.S., those of us who are engaged on, on Palestinian rights work are very familiar with the Tikva Fund and defending free speech related to Israel because um, that, that we're familiar with the Kohelet Forum, largely because of a guy named Eugene Kantorovich, who will be thrilled that we're talking about him today. He loves attention. Um, and, and Eugene is the head of Kohelet's international law department. And among other things, he has been the, the quote unquote legal voice for years who will write a quote unquote legal argument defending literally anything Israel does. It's right to take land by force, it's right to build settlements, anything, anything. And he has publicly claimed credit for playing uh, a central role, if not the key role, in drafting legislation in the U.S., in drafting, promoting, conceptualizing legislation in the U.S. that basically targets boycotts, um, which are nonviolent, um, constitutionally protected free speech until now in the U.S., <laughs> of Israel and or of settlements. Uh, a few years ago, there was a, an article in Haaretz on Kohelet, I'll put a link along with this podcast entitled The Right-Wing Think Tank That Quietly Runs the Knesset. And last year, there was another article in Haaretz entitled The U.S. Billionaires Secretly Funding the Right-Wing Effort to Reshape Israel. Um, and, and in these articles, one of the things they focus on was the nation-state law and the role of Kohelet in the Knesset on the nation-state law. So that last article, I will quote, says, the two billionaires are strictly low profile, even though they are among the biggest donors to the Republican Party, notably its Trumpian wing. They're also among the major donors to conservative and libertarian organizations in their home country that resemble Kohelet politically. So can you talk about Kohelet specifically or more broadly, this cross-pollination? Because it's not merely that Israeli, that U.S. Uh, illiberal thinking, conservative thinking, right wing, whatever you want to call it, is being imported to Israel. But the Israel related elements are also being exported into the US. Can you talk about that, that cross pollination effort? Yeah, um, I would start 
with the last bit about uh, um, Israeli thinking being imported to the U.S. and also to Eastern Europe and to, to other places. Um, again, going back to the way we used to think about the conflict in the 90s, um, which is really when my own political thinking was shaped, um, we saw the Israeli occupation as an ex exception. Like the fact that was, there was a nation state that denies rights from a civilian population could only be justified as a temporary mean. Something that, you know, again, security pretext, something that would eventually find some sort of uh, uh, um, some sort of resolution because it was an exception to the entire international system and even to right-wing thinking because right-wing thinking in Europe and the United States was very constitutional in the sense that civilians deserved full rights and within that context, they promote capitalism or na and nationalism or whatever. But once you're an indigenous native population, you're part of the game. Um, so... Israel was always an exception in saying that Palestinian will never be part of the system. There was never a thinking of integrating new Palestinian population, not the descendants of those who remain in 1948, in, into the system. And I think one of the scariest phenomena of the last 10 or 15 years was the emergence of a new right that views whole groups of population as not being part of the true nation. You can talk about India and you can talk about Hungary. You know, some, sometimes it's an indigenous population of a different ethnic minority. Sometimes it will be a conversation about the danger of, of uh, asylum seekers or refugees or immigrants who are here for like 20 or 30 years and are already part of society, but they cannot become part of society because our thinking of what is a nation and now what is a citizen changed from uh, thinking about citizenship and an inclusive model of citizenship into an ethnic-based model. In Israel, it was always the ethnic-based because this country was born as a Jewish state. And, and once it brought the West Bank in, or and Gaza in, it had to define itself as, as, as a Jewish democracy that leaves the Palestinian out. And, and now I think that this form of ethnic nationalism, it's what interests the most to populists in the United States. And, and, you, and in the conference, I think, don't get me on the details, but I heard one of the speakers, two of the speakers, the American speakers, maybe even Elliot Abrams, talk about Americans need to know what true nationalism is from Israelis. And it's a sentence that I've been hearing from the American right. Like, Israelis can learn from us about what capitalism is, because you're all a bit socialist, but, and what free market and what freedom is. But we can learn from Israelis what, what true nationalism is. And 
And I think this is a sort of connection of ideas that benefits both groups. Like you can be a white nationalist in the United States more easily if you see a sort of an acceptable model of a democracy that says, we're going to stay in the West Bank forever. We're going to find whatever arrangement, autonomy or, or others for the Palestinians, but we're not going to make them citizens and we still remain a democracy. We demand that you see us as a democracy and the world does see Israel as a democracy. So I think Israel plays a pivotal role in the emergence of the illiberal democracy, which is the phenomena of, the, uh, uh, of this last decade, the illiberal democracy, which is not a country that becomes fascist overnight. It's a country that maintains democratic procedures and receives the benefits of democracy, maintain a free economic system, is regarded as a democracy, but is becoming less and less liberal and pushing whole groups of population. So now I ask myself, was the inevitability in the end of the occupation that we felt in the 90s really true? Is it inevitable because it's an exception? Maybe this is not an exception. That's a really scary thought. You know, maybe we are heading towards a world of illiberal democracies in which Israel is just but one system and maybe the United States will become less and less liberal and will keep whole groups of useless populations as non-citizen, second-class citizen, maybe Eastern Europe will look this way, maybe India, some other countries. So, so that's, I think, is where Israel serves as a very bad example. And the failure of the Israeli left and Israel as a whole to resolve the Palestinian issue has brought about really consequences that we couldn't imagine back then. Um, so I, I, would also, I would also say not merely a bad example, but it, it in effect gives a, a a kind of kosher stamp to this kind of a liberalism. Exactly. Right? I mean, so, it's nobody wants argument, to you, go ahead. Yeah, so yeah, the arguments is let's continue to regard Israel as a model democracy because it, it serves us in many ways, but it also serves us internally, in, us in the United States or us in, in Eastern Europe, in saying whatever Israel does is still part of a democratic, of the democratic game. So, you know, um, I'm segueing a bit, but there's this controversy in Tel Aviv. I live in Tel Aviv and all my kids go to an elementary school here, here in my neighborhood. And the Tel Aviv municipality is now in a battle towards the opening of the school year next week with the Ministry of Education because the, the, the municipality distributed to all the classrooms and school in Tel Aviv maps which show the green line, maps of Israel which still show the green line. And the Ministry of Education demands that all maps in Israel will not show the green line. Oh, and, and, and just as a reminder, when Palestinians use maps that don't show the green line, they are accused of genocidal anti-Semitic intent by wiping Jews off the map. Just to be very clear, and, and that's exactly every time. where I'm getting at, because, because Israel is really pushing hard back, back, back against the apartheid analogy. 
and saying, no, we're not apartheid. There is a sort of a temporary situation or a, a unique situation taking place in a contested territory, the West Bank, and a still even more unique situation taking place in Gaza. But at the same time, Israel claims all, uh, 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 all powers of a sovereign in the entire territory because the currency in the West Bank is the shekel, the, uh, um, the, the decision who to admit into the West Bank is Israel's. You cannot go into the Ramallah without a permit for Israel. We even control the electromagnetic frequency and obviously we control what they call in uh, political science, the, 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 the use of legitimate violence. You can only use violence like the Palestinian Authority is working to protect Israelis. It's not working to protect Palestinians. So, and now we're raising the green line. So we're not even saying that's a unique territory. We're saying it's a united territory, but we're not an apartheid. We're still a democracy, even though in our territory, there are 3 million people without rights for 55. And even though we don't treat it as a different territory. So this is really mind boggling. And the ability to hold this argument together is only you can only maintain it if you start looking at democracy differently. And that's the, the new Israeli democracy, the idea, the model. And that's a very dangerous idea, I think. Yeah. Um, and, and there's also, uh, um, well, I think we can follow up from there and maybe later relate to, to uh, the ways American thinking is, is, is influencing the Israeli conversation. So I, want, I actually want to pick up on something you said a little while ago, that in your article, you do note that the Israeli conservative conference says it's modeled on CPAC, right? This is the American yeah. Conservative Political Action Conference. And your article was written in May and not coincidentally in July of this year, CPAC held its own conference in Israel. And, and it's funny when you said about, you know, what you can learn from Israel, what we can learn from America. That was actually one of the lines attributed to Ben Shapiro, who was the big star of that conference. Right, right, he, right. He said that too. Yeah. What yeah. Israel can learn from America, what American can learn from Israel. Socialism versus nationalism. Yeah. You can exactly. learn about free market from us and we can learn about nationalism from you. Exactly. So, so but, what is it that Ben Shapiro wants to learn? I think this is what he wants to learn. He wants to learn about a sort of national identity that still maintain, is seen as a democracy, even a better democracy, because the Jewish majority is finally heard, or the silent majority in the United States is finally getting you know, his own voice. So it's actually a better democracy. The right claims to be more democratic than the left these days. And it's modeled on, on the Israeli example. But I cut you off. Yeah, continue. No, no, that, that, that's exactly what I was thinking. I actually wanted to connect this, connect what you're saying about the shift in how Israelis think of democracy and how they defend their democracy and the shift in the policies. Um, and, and it's not really a, a sudden shift, right? When you talk about erasing the green line, Israel erased the green line for decades. It sort of found the green line again when the peace process started. And, you know, I, I have been documenting for years Israeli uh, ministries. The website of virtually every Israeli ministry does not include the green line on their maps, including the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. I, I write about this about once a year when someone attacks the Palestinians yeah. for some map. I'm like, well, here's the MFA, which doesn't include the green line on any maps. But the... But again, how do, 
we talked at the beginning, I mentioned the, the escalating attacks on civil society and on the, particularly the Palestinian NGO sector, which by the way, does have second and third order consequences likely for the Israeli NGO sector. Can, can you talk about that? Can you talk about you know, how, how it is that a country that you know, in memory celebrated groups like B'Tselem and even breaking the silence as evidence of the health of Israeli democracy and now not essentially going to war against the most prominent Arab human rights group in the region, Al-Haq, and, and, and for years now escalating the delegitimization of its own um, human rights and civil society sector. So I think both come from like two pillars of the ideas we discussed, like what is a nation state, what is a national democracy right now? So if you take about, uh, let's look at the Palestinians first, because um, uh, uh, as you mentioned, the attack on the civil society there is really, really unprecedented, maybe uh, uh, since uh, the second intifada with Israel re, you know, completely destroyed the Palestinian Authority and, and reestablished it as what I would say more of a, a, a proxy to the occupation that the state in the waiting, at least compared to what it was before. And, 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 and I don't want to deprive Palestinians from agency, but that's how it seems from where I see it. Um, um, so, so I think that if you understand that Palestinians are out, uh, outside the civilian system, and, 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 though they live in the same territory as the settlers who are now seen as parts of Israel, and, and this creeping annexation has crept a long way by now. You know, there are civilian universities in the West Bank, I, I'm a documentarist now, so there was a, there's a documentary fund operating in the West Bank only for Israeli citizens. There was a documentary festival in the West Bank taking place a few weeks ago where the most, the most powerful producer in, in Israeli uh, cinema said, once we're going to bring our, the Israeli Oscars, it's called the Ophir Prize, to the West Bank, obviously not for Palestinians. So Palestinian society, civilian society is really outside the system. It's outside the Israeli democracy. It's outside the Israeli culture. It does not have a, like a foothold anywhere in terms of being recognized as a proper civilian society. So uh, um, it's very easy to see any political organization as subversive. Any human rights organization, because it had people who were operating within a, a, a different political context, is part of a terror organization. And all sorts of guilt by association like long chains of guilt by association that ends up that any 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 organization that's formed there can be seen as as, as a terror group as a, as, a, as a subsidiary of, of a terror groups which is what what the israeli authorities are now saying on uh, on on those on those organizations so and i think uh, uh, when we keep the entire palestinian society outside the system Whatever you imagine as basic constitutional civilian rights is unimaginable in the, Israeli, in the Israeli conversation. So the Israeli media does not even have a conversation right now on sort of that sees these organizations as civil society organizations because we're so used to not understanding that there is a civil society in, in the Palestinian society. 
we see the entire Palestinian as something that's outside civil society. It's only seen through a security and law and order context. So that's the Palestinian element. And I think the second element, and it goes back to the idea of what is a democratic, uh, this democratic nationalism, that the Israeli organizations are delegitimized for receiving foreign funds, which is ironic because the entire Tikva operation and all that is foreign, foreign funded. But a right-wing person will tell you, yeah, but foreign funding critical of the state and foreign funding patriotic is a whole different story. And the right is in line with the Jewish majority. So the foreign funding that the right receives is in line with democracy because it serves the Jewish majority while the foreign funding that the left, the human rights organization received is foreign intervention. And foreign intervention goes the idea of the, the Jewish majority executing its own rights, determining its own future. So I think these are like two sides of the same nationalist idea. And I think this idea, and not a certain lobby, or not, you know, religion, or Judeo-Christian culture, and all those codenames, those nice ideas, with this idea of nationalism, I think that's what fascinates the new American right. Because 15 years ago, Ben Shapiro would have nothing to say in the Israeli context, I think. You know, 15 years ago, like, because if you drill down the American right and, and start asking yourself the question about constitutional rights and you apply it to the Israeli system when there's no constitution and the indigenous population is deprived of rights, the whole thing falls apart. But if you start interpreting American constitution in national terms, of a certain majority that it belongs to, then it starts to make sense. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate that. I want to I want to follow up on a, on a couple of things you said. I, I actually want to link this back to your documentary, which is on Hebron and the role of Hebron in shaping uh, Israeli policies. Um, but linking to what you're talking about. So earlier this month, CPAC followed up its events in Israel with its annual U.S. conference. Um, which was in Dallas. And, and interestingly, delivering the opening prayer at that event and appearing as a featured speaker on one of the panels was an Israeli-American who was a spokesman for the settlers in Hebron named Yishai Fleischer, who will also be thrilled to be getting attention in this podcast. Um, and, and during that conference, um, Yishai posted on Twitter a photo of himself with Hungary's Viktor Orban. And I'll read you the tweet. Great, all capital, meet all capitals. Great meeting with modern hero of nationalism, leader in the defense of Europe against jihadist immigration and an ally of, of Israel, Hungary PM Viktor Orban. And, and then there was blowback on Twitter for cozying up to Orban. And, and Yeshai responded to that blowback a, a few times, but one of the tweets, and I'll read it was, I am not looking at Hungary as a Hungarian Jew or a diaspora Jew. I'm looking at, at, at it as an Israeli Jew, a fellow sovereign, 
And from this nationalist perspective, nation states must unite against the globalist agenda, which seeks to force open borders and erase national identities, which really feels like Ishai is encapsulating a lot of things you've said and like, this is what I'm thinking. But they're can, very explicit about it. Yeah, it is. Can you talk about this? We have here a Hebron leader at CPAC in the United States making common cause with Viktor Orban over their shared, quote unquote, nationalist perspective. Right. Which is, by the way, terminology, you know, globalist agenda that, that really has it sort of reeks of classic anti-Semitic, yeah, yeah, yeah. among other things. And, and also just pulling this again, going back to your your other piece. Diving in a little deeper, can you talk about how the settlement enterprise, this 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 agenda of keeping every inch of his of, of biblical lands, has been a driver of Israeli liberalism, and in parallel is feeding into this alignment with Christian evangelicals? I, I don't know if that's something you're comfortable talking about it, but it, it seems it seems like a, a core component of what's going on here to me. Yes, I, and, and I actually think that in this alignment, we, we always look on the religious alignment. And it's very, I think sometimes it's too easy for us, you know, being, I don't know about your religious, but I'm completely secular. And, 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 uh, and too, too easy for us, you know, liberals, sometimes secular liberals, to, to explain everything in religious fundamentalism. And, 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 and yeah, those fundamentalist Christians are, are uh, uh, um, in line with the fundamentalist Jews and, and it totally, all, all makes sense for them. But I think the key here is this, is the conversation about who gets rights in the land. And that's where the similarities are, are important. And, and um, I don't want to talk too much about the American, uh, the American evangelical community because first, I'm not an expert. And, and second, I think the settlement project is so far ahead of any other development that we can see in the United States on that aspect. So maybe better focus, focus on that. So in Hebron, which, uh, 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 um, where Ishai comes from, there are 800 Jews living in the midst of quarter of a million Palestinians, 350,000, if you want to speak about the larger Hebron area. And there's another settlement of Kiryat Arba with another like 4,000 Jews at the edge of, of Hebron. And yet, and these are all like indigenous populations. Some of them are refugee from F48, but nobody argues that they, they're either were born in this land, the descendants of people who were born in this land. And the ability to, to, to talk about nationalism and to say, I, I'm, I've, I don't care about Jewish tradition. I don't care about those kind of reasons. But we are the ones who have national rights in this land. And, the, and, and again, Usually sitting among 800 people in the midst of 300,000, like you walk in the street and that's something we really try and show in this film. And, and, and you've been there in the Shuhada street and, 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 and many visitors are like, even those who read about the conflict are really taken aback by, by the, 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 
the ability of, of 800 people to reshape the space there and, and to change the reality, but to actually be the ones with full rights. And you, you see it in your own eyes, the rights of movement is reserved to the settlers in certain alleys and streets, the rights, uh, the rights to bear arms there. Uh, um, sometimes there's a curfew, but the curfew does not imply to the, to the settlers there. And, and of course, the most uh, a prominent example is the fact that the settlers get to vote for the government of the land. The government is the state of Israel. And the, the phenomenon of the coming elections is Itamar Ben-Gvir, the Kahanist uh, 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 member who's now heading an extreme right-wing party in Israel called Otsma Yudit. And he's polling like nine or 10 seats, which is unheard of for Kahanist movements in Israel. And he's a resident of Hebron. He's a resident of this tiny community of 800 people, which in the previous Knesset had two Knesset members coming from there. So I think there's a sort of avant-garde there in the thinking about uh, using a national pretext to, to, to maintain rights, to maintain the territories and to deprive others from rights. And disregarding the old religious uh, pretext. It's, it's interesting, when I researched this piece uh, that I did about uh, the conservative conference and I mentioned it in the piece, I came across this article in a religious uh, paper when that criticizes Kohelet uh, uh, Tikva Fund and the American style conversation. And, and it's a very right-wing piece, and it, and, but it says we've been undergoing this change in the right without even noticing because this new Kohelet and Tikva forums are so effective, we stop talking about re Jewish religion. We stop talking about our, our, our uh, biblical uh, uh, rules and, 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 and orders that we got in maintaining, uh, uh, in, in keeping, in keeping the land. So, the, so some sharp observers in the right, mostly from the religious side, are saying something is going on here. Like there's a transformation of the conversation, and for a, I, I, I can't even begin to explain how revolutionary it is what you saw, what you mentioned in Twitter, like for a settler to sit with a European populist and say, I forget about Jewish history. I don't mind if he's like, uh, 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 um, if he's causing some minor anti-Semitism in his land. I don't mind the history of the movement he's connected to, but he represents some nationalist idea that I belong to. And I think some of it happens around Trump as well. You know, it's a bigger phenomena. It has all sorts of links between Israeli government and. Trumpian administration, especially the Netanyahu governments, but but part of it is that part of it is that. Thanks, and and just to end this conversation, I think we could go on a lot longer because I have many more questions to ask. I want to give you a chance to talk about the documentary briefly. Um, what is it? Um, what was? How was it made? What do you hope to achieve? And when and how can people expect to see it? I have seen it, I should say, and it's wonderful. So. In, in just a few words, you know, um, I'm part of a generation that never raised the green line. You know, I grew up, my, 
I was a child when I, I was a kid, a teenager when when the when the second when the first Intifada started. Uh, I served in the IDF in the West Bank during the 90s when we thought it was peace was coming, um, and it all collapsed in the second Intifada. We lived this reality here. So, so uh, even on the left, when people spoke about this is just a one-state issue now. I kind of move uncomfortably in the chair because I think this a military regime that's been going on for 55 years in the West Bank and still does in Gaza as well, despite what people say uh, uh, in Gaza and in the West Bank, that controlling people outside the civilian system, but through a military. And, and as, as we talked about, you know, the ability of a general to issue an order and to shut down a human rights organization that's been that's are credible in the entire world and 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 so i think it still is different than whatever happens within the green line whatever uh, 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 racism or towards our minority deprivation of rights ha ha happens and and i and together with uh, an israeli director edith avrahami we wanted to dive into the nature of this system that controls people through military orders for 55 years. And it's a huge topic. So in order to tell it and to tell the story of the evolution of this system and how it moved from or uh, controlling people through proxies towards technological control, which is the phenomenon that we see in the West Bank, a whole issue that we can set another podcast on, like that Israel exports to the United States and to Europe, technological control of people. So we wanted to show this evolution and to, in order to do it, we set on a specific location. We told the story of one street, the street in the center of Hebron, which is really a unique location because you know it, but not many people know it. Like the settlement movement was born there. There was a massacre uh, uh, that destroyed the peace process there, the Goldstein massacre in 94, that really started the suicide attacks in Israeli cities and really started the collapse of the peace process on that day. Um, organizations that we work with, like Breaking the Silence, were funded in the, the, the B'Tselem Camera Project. They all started in this very street. Um, this is also a, a events that predates the state of Israel in the conflict, like the massacre of 1929, where the Jewish indigenous population was massacred there. And it, many people see it as year zero of the conflict. It happened in this very street. So you can really... Uh, and when you go there, you feel that you have... You feel the entire conflict in, 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 a, in a tour of two hours along the street. So we wanted to take the audience and really place them there and show them the entire conflict through like a stretch of one kilometer. Luckily enough, because it's such an important place, it's been hugely documented over the years. So we got hundreds of hours of archive to work with and we had access to uh, the military governors of this area of Hebron, who spoke with us about the orders they gave very candidly, I think. And, 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 and the film is an attempt really to do a theory of all of the occupation in this uh, single location. 
as you said, we premiered at the Tel Aviv Film Festival, the Doc Aviv Film Festival, and we're about to, to come to New York. I don't know which festival, but what we're about to be screened in all sorts of places in the United States. And um, if you follow my Twitter account, my Facebook page, I will announce everything as, as we know it. But we, we really hope that my hope is that and we're starting to tour the film in, in Israel. In, uh, we want to go to schools, to kibbutzim, into the periphery. My hope that everyone who thinks about this conflict and who feels that, as I do, that the occupation and conflict are really what constructs our life there. And, 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 and I think it's meaningful for people around, uh, outside Israel as well. Uh, I want them to see, to see this film. I hope they will. I, I hope so too. And we'll keep in touch. Uh, hopefully we can maybe do a a discussion about it when it is screening in the US. Um, so we're gonna have to stop here for now. Noam, thank you so much for joining me today and, and, and being so generous with your, with your insights. For our audience, thank you for listening and for watching. Don't forget to follow Noam on Twitter. That is at, at N-S-H-E-I-Z-A-F. Uh, and finally, as always, I wanna remind uh, people, subscribe if you're not already doing so to the Occupied Thoughts podcast. You can do so on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. That way you won't miss any of the great content that we're posting pretty much every week. And you can find the podcast and the video version of this podcast uh, at www.fmep.org and on our YouTube channel, which you can find through our website. So with that, uh, we'll end this here. I'm Lara Friedman, president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, signing off until the next episode of Occupied Thoughts.